Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Sam C., Cringy, and Cindy S., unfucking insane level members of the show. Hey, it's 99. As you might imagine, Max is sufficiently tweaked after the House passed a $768 billion defense spending bill, the NDAA, for 2022, which was even more than President Biden requested. On a related note, today's episode looks at the increasingly hostile rhetoric towards China and how the U.S. is positioning itself and its allies to confront what they perceive to be Chinese aggression. Make sure to stay tuned for show notes at the end of the episode. We have some updates on our coffee store, new member shoutouts, and a rundown of how we plan to close out the year. So stick around. We, of course, are under no illusions that 20 years of hostility between the People's Republic of China and the United States of America are going to be swept away by one week of talks that we will have there. We must recognize that the government of the People's Republic of China and the government of the United States have had great differences. We will have differences in the future. But what we must do is to find a way to see that we can have differences without being enemies in war. U to the N to the FTR. Unfucking the Republic, meeting people where they are. Left, right, center, make you laugh, make you cry. Max brings the heat of a basic white guy. Could have run for office, could have got up off his ass. Could have made something other than a fucking podcast. But here we are, yo, the UNFPR show. Many faces ripping the script with the fuckers around the globe. And Brittany brings it back for Tom McGovern. Let's go. Unfuckers, unconnuckers, you're a fuckers 99. I'm the fuckers and some fuckers, they all like they fucking mind. From New York to Outagami, Halifax to New Zealand. Say it loud, say it with me, yo, yo fuck Milton Freeman. Howdy do, on fuckers, subfuckers, euro fuckers, down under fuckers, on canuckers, pitch, bottle, pack fuckers, and you got this. Plant fuckers. Methinks this is simply the beginning of several episodes to come on the deteriorating relationship between the United States and China. I originally had something else planned for today, but I happened to catch part of a CNN special report on China the other night that really threw me for a loop and sent me down a rabbit hole. Perhaps I was highly tuned to it at the moment because of our back-to-back episodes on the global order, but it struck me as one of the boldest pieces of propaganda that I'd seen in some time. We'll look at that piece, along with other avenues of propaganda that have us playing a deadly game of chicken with China. Adding salt to the wound is the revised defense spending budget passed by the House as 99 mentioned. Part of the justification for it was to counteract China's ambitions, whatever the fuck that means. Now, I won't bore you by continuing to yell about how the military budget is still scheduled to be larger than it was when we were fighting two wars, or how it's set to increase every year for the next 10 years until we're allocating nearly a trillion dollars annually in the budget, which is, of course, still larger than the next 10 nations' budgets combined and how it passed 363 to 70, so there's some consensus among our lawmakers that we need a bigger fucking military despite not being at war for two seconds. Oh, and of the 42 references in the bill to climate, every one relates to assessments, considerations, surveys, and reports, not one concrete spending item for resiliency, just, hey, you should study the thing that you've been studying since the 90s and consider it in your assessments for the reports on the newly formed committees to study organic gaps in planning. Climate change was mentioned 42 separate occasions in the NDAA. China? 89. Know how many times China was referenced in the 2017 NDAA? 15. 
Nothing sends a positive message to your largest trading partner than suddenly reorganizing your entire defense budget around your so-called partner. I mean, when did we become so fucking obsessed with China? China. 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 Oh, that's right. Boy Genius decided to pick a fight with our largest trading partner by instituting tariffs that had the opposite effect and wound up increasing prices for the American consumer. And firing the appellate board of the WTO so no trade disputes can be settled. And pissing off our European and Latin American allies, which left them no choice but to start negotiating with the PRC. The end game to people like Steve Bannon and the circle around Trump is to go to war with China. China. So they've been extremely busy creating the preconditions to make that happen. Fuck up trade. Turn public opinion against them. Rattle those sabers over human rights issues that literally meant nothing to us five minutes ago. I'm sorry, Uyghurs, but it's true. Manufacture a conflict where none exists because it's easier to prop up an economy on military spending than to reimagine it to save the planet. So, of course, we're fresh off our Noam Chomsky episode last week, celebrating the life of one of the world's great public intellectuals. So only fitting that we bridge the two shows with thoughts from the man himself. And in the United States, it's unfortunately the case uh, for well over a century, a uh, century and a half, that it's always easy to blame the yellow peril. Uh, the yellow, they're coming after us. We've seen this all through my life, in fact, way before. So blame the World Health Organization, blame China, claim that the World Health Organization is, uh, has insidious relations with China, is practically working for them. And that sells to a population that's been deeply indoctrinated for a long time, way back to the Chinese Exclusion Acts in the 19th century, to say, yeah, those yellow barbarians are coming over to destroy us. So yes, we have, in certain periods, been easily indoctrinated into fearing the so-called yellow peril. We viewed the people of Vietnam, Korea, Laos, and Cambodia as less than, subhuman when it fits our narrative. We helped overthrow the government in Indonesia and supported the likes of General Suharto, who went forward with the campaign of genocide and oppression. Japan was our mortal enemy in World War II. Then, after we aided the regeneration of their economy, saw them again as more of a threat than a partner in the 1980s, until we defanged their currency and beat them into a client state submission. But China? China is an entirely different animal. But what kind of animal? I think China probably, at the heart, is a country of pandas. Do you really want to fear a panda? Do you think a kangaroo will fear a panda? Probably not. A panda probably will run away in front of a leg-kicking kangaroo. Ah, yes, a panda. A lovable panda. We'll get to that dude in the clip in a bit, but let's go back to the CNN feature that twisted my guts first. China's time is now. For Reed Zakaria reports, China's Iron Fist, Sunday at 9. So right now, the special by CNN contributor Fareed Zakaria can only be viewed on premium services, but it aired on live TV this week in primetime, and it was nothing short of state propaganda. Now, let me acknowledge that successful propaganda requires elements of truth and authenticity in order to be successful. 
Unless you're stupid enough to believe that JFK Jr. was going to appear at the grassy knoll in Dallas to announce he's going to be Donald Trump's running mate. Uh, you make an outstanding point. So I'm qualifying successful propaganda as information that becomes so widely accepted it receives little to no critical attention. Information that gains acceptance, becomes the official narrative, and then is acted upon. Hmm, you mean something like this? What you will see is an accumulation of facts and disturbing patterns of behavior. The facts in Iraqi's behavior Iraq's behavior demonstrate that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort, to disarm as required by the international community. Indeed, the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. No, not like that. Exactly that. Official narratives often take time. So what made the WMD line unique was the sheer speed of acceptance. But it was at a time when America was in an altered state and willing to be led into fire so long as it felt like we were exacting our revenge. But the build-up to something like a dispute with the second largest economy and superpower in the world takes time, coordination, and money. A whole lot of money. So what I found remarkable in Sicaria's piece was the confidence of the narrative. It featured serious voices like Ian Bremmer of the Eurasia Group and writer-author Evan Osnos, who are experts in foreign affairs and U.S.-China relations, so it gives it some gravitas. But it was entirely one-sided. China is militarizing. President Xi is consolidating power and becoming more authoritarian. The Communist Party is cracking down on dissidents, committing atrocities against the Uyghurs in the Xi'an province. It's preparing missile defense systems on man-made islands in the South China Sea. The surveillance state has gone beyond Orwellian. Their technology has surpassed that of the U.S. and every other nation, and Xi has granted himself extraordinary powers and dissolved critical parts of the Chinese constitution. So all of these, to some degree, mind you, are true. And Zakaria has done credible reporting on China for a few years. So I wasn't surprised by the assertions or the reporting in the show, but it was still unsettling for some reason. I couldn't shake the feeling that the whole thing just felt so heavy-handed and manufactured. The framing of the piece contained this air of inevitability, that armed conflict with China was the logical extension of their actions. It felt wholly unbalanced. So when I woke up the next morning, I went online to try and find it again, but that's when I saw that it was only available for viewing on premium services. But I did find a link to the promotional video. And rather than play that for you, let me just read you the URL. Sponsorcontent.cnn.com 2021-1120 Opinions slash Fareed China Iron Fist Column Index.html So, there are other links to the trailer, but this is the one that I found first. Sponsorcontent.cnn.com This is fucked on so many levels. If it is sponsored content, who's the sponsor? Who wrote the check for the production? Zakaria? An outside company with ties to a think tank? I don't know. But let's be generous and say that it's something as innocuous as CNN paying a contributor and an outside production company with no agenda to create a package for air that is balanced and as objective as possible. That's certainly how the 24-7 news business works, but that's not how it was presented live on the air when I saw it. And there's no disclaimers or links that would clarify this either. But that's part of the issue here. 
Even the most generous view that this is a purchased package of content with no agenda shows you a bit about how the news business does work. There's no editorial oversight here. It's posted under opinion on the website, but it comes across on air as direct reporting and investigation by CNN. And most of the assertions maintained by the experts were ascribed to President Xi. How she feels about the collapse of the Soviet Union, how Xi's upbringing colored his views, how she interpreted the events of January 6, 2021 in the United States. We learned a whole bunch about how President Xi supposedly felt about shit, despite the notoriously closed communication channels of the Chinese government. The imagery was stark as well. It showed the humble rise of Xi and how his family was fucked over by the communist government, which somehow emboldened Xi to become even more dedicated to the Communist Party agenda. Then the special shows him being welcomed around the world with open arms and talks about how disarming he is in conversation. She charmed the world until one day. His true intentions were revealed, and Xi's inner dictator was released. Tens of thousands of Chinese military members marching through the streets alongside missiles and giant banners of Xi's likeness. He is bigger than the party. It's all gone to his head, from panda to dragon, and under three minutes of the special, everyone run for your lives! Like I said, the fact is that claims made in the special about China's actions have all been independently verified. But there's a reason that we're acting like it's all brand new information and wrapping it in fresh packaging. China was viewed cautiously when Nixon opened up talks in the 1970s, with many in foreign policy positions eyeing them with even more than caution. As we covered in the Global Order of Power episode, even David Rockefeller warned the members of his Trilateral Commission that China possessed the numbers, the patience, and the determination to someday grow into the world's largest superpower. Now, if you can do math, it is only a matter of time before China overtakes the United States in purely economic terms. We might still be a decade or two away, all things being equal, from China's GDP outpacing the U.S., but it seems fairly certain. They have the population. Now they have the infrastructure. They have a booming middle class moving into the consumer economy, and China maintains trade relations with every major country in the world. And they've quietly stepped into the void left by the United States in places like Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Latin America. And while we dither, China moves forward, and it's causing fractures in tried-and-true relationships since the Bretton Woods era. Take Europe, for example, as observed by Professor Rick Wolf. The United Kingdom is clear. They are in the American camp. And the Russians are increasingly making it clear they're in the Chinese camp. But for the rest of Europe, in the middle between England on one end and Russia on the other, it's an open question. The powers that be know that we're losing our economic edge to China, and foreign policy observers are rightly acknowledging a change in tone and posture from the Chinese government. It's bold and more assertive. A little cocksure compared to the quiet conciliatory rhetoric of the past, at least where Western relations have been concerned. But now, in the wake of our withdrawal from Afghanistan, 
the U.S. media is in a bit of a lather over the China question. So it sounds like something out of a movie, the threat of a bunch of human weapons with biologically enhanced capabilities. Pretty sure that's the plot line of Captain America. But the um, reality China will back off if they believe that the United States will use force. Now, this is exceedingly dangerous. But some really bad Taiwan policy over the last three decades has put us into a position where there are no safe options. What I can tell you is we're focused on developing the capabilities, the operational concepts, making sure we have the resources and the right strategy in place so that we can deal with the PRC as the number one pacing challenge. China may have just launched a hypersonic weapon, but we're killing them in so many other areas. Like, for example, they only have two pronouns. (laughs) We have 237. <laughs> and, and, and despite launching a rocket, yeah, they have no diversity programs. Have you ever seen a picture of all of their astronauts? They're all, they're all Chinese. Yeah, so the last clip is from a show that I've honestly never watched until now. Greg Gutfeld on Fox is doing some sort of conservative version of The Daily Show. Jeepers. I actually watched the entire segment like a moth to a flame and then turned into a giant pillar of salt and died when it ended. I want to quickly cover the three doctrines that have largely governed our entire approach to foreign policy over our brief history. Each borrows from its predecessor and builds upon it. The first is the Monroe Doctrine. History buffs generally or unfuckers who listen to our Caribbean episode will recall that this was a policy written by James Monroe when he was Secretary of State to James Madison. It essentially warns Western European nations against interventions in our hemisphere. It was under this doctrine that we swallowed up Florida, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, and the rationale behind our support of coups in Central and South America. We basically drew a line in the ocean. Which is really hard to do, by the way, trust me. Later, Teddy Roosevelt would add some expansionist rhetoric to the Monroe Doctrine that became known as the Roosevelt Corollary, but the principle ostensibly remained the same. The Great Wars were seen as anomalies, engagements that we were drawn into rather than challenges to our doctrine. But that would change at the conclusion of the Second World War with the Truman Doctrine. The Truman Doctrine came from a speech by Truman regarding the Civil War in Greece in 1947. See, the British had pulled out of the conflict, leaving open the possibility that the Greek Communist Party could prevail in the war, so Truman asked Congress to back the government against the Communist insurgency. It was the first step toward the Cold War containment theory that would take hold during the Eisenhower years and remain intact through the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's important to understand how big this shift was for the United States. We were out of the war. We'd helped the Allied forces prevail. We could have turned inward again and gone quiet, but the thought of a strengthening alliance of communist states throughout Europe was an impossible notion. So we devised a policy of intervention without provocation for the first time in our little empire's history, and the Cold War was born. Now, the third version of our foreign policy doctrine was the hardest turn, and that's the Bush Doctrine. Essentially, the Bush Doctrine, named for George W. Bush, says that if we even suspect any nation or even an unaffiliated actor harbors ill will towards the United States and might someday pose a threat to our national security, which is left purposefully vague and undefined, We'll just fucking kill you. So that's how our doctrine has evolved over the years. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. So how does one go about creating and selling a conflict abroad when it doesn't exist or have anything to do with us? The first part is the most important. 
Step one, determine that your proposed foe presents a threat to our national security. Let's go back to a clip that we played earlier. Um, China will back off if they believe that the United States will use force. Now, this is exceedingly dangerous, but some really bad Taiwan policy over the last three decades has put us into a position where there are no safe options. That's Gordon Chang, a senior fellow of the Gatestone Institute and frequent contributor to Fox News, Newsmax, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, and networks abroad like India Today. Chang is perhaps the leading conservative analyst most responsible for selling the anti-China narrative. According to the Militarist Monitor, the Gatestone Institute is tied to neoconservative and other right-wing networks in the United States and Europe. It was chaired by John Bolton until 2018 and is a, quote, clearinghouse for hawkish right-wing commentaries on national security, the Middle East and Islam, as well as a convener of high-dollar events on security and energy issues, end quote. The board also boasts conservative luminaries like Alan Dushowitz and Rebecca Mercer. In fact, it was Mercer's addition to the board that prompted Gatestone to remove board member names from their website. Chang's singular role in the universe appears to be to foment discord among the United States and China. There are scores of clips of him appearing on shows across multiple networks, warning of impending conflict with China and recommending the U.S. break all ties with China. His working argument at the moment is all about protecting trade in the South China Sea, a part of the world that carries as much oil as the Strait of Hormuz and the greatest amount of global goods, period. China's buildup of man-made military islands, increase in the number of carriers and flight exercises, and increasingly hostile stance toward Taiwan equate, in Chang's mind, to national security threats to the United States. Now, we'll talk about Taiwan in a minute, but let's just objectively think about this as a threat to our national security because they can just shut down the flow of goods in the South China Sea. Now, I'm not diminishing the Taiwanese issue. I'm just looking at Chang's thesis here because it has essentially become the official narrative. We are the largest consumer of Chinese goods in the world. Thousands, thousands of U.S. companies maintain a manufacturing presence in China and Taiwan, and we're responsible for a massive chunk of employment in urban Chinese areas. If China's number one stated goal is to become the largest economy in the world, why the fuck would they shut down trade in the South China Sea? They wouldn't. But as long as we can tie their military buildup to point number two, neocons can make the case that this is indeed a matter of national security. Step two, sell the public on some vague notion of protecting democracy. Taiwan has been a pawn in the Asian military chess game for centuries. Thousands of years ago, it was actually part of the Chinese mainland, but sea level rise separated it and the inhabitants of the island lived apart from its neighbors for centuries. From the 1500s through the 1800s, several European nations from the Netherlands and France to Spain and Portugal all took a run at colonizing parts of the island or the whole, but they were largely rebuffed. But Taiwan would become a desirable trading partner for nearly everyone. The Japanese occupied Taiwan for about 50 years until the end of World War II when it came under the protection of China. This is where it gets a little dicey. The Taiwanese see themselves as mostly independent, and they have an independent governing structure, though they maintain strong ties to the Chinese government. And the Chinese government sees it differently and issues strong rebukes to anyone who dares refer to Taiwan as a nation and not part of China. Some of you might even recall John Cena's public apology for doing just that, which was, for a brief moment, the most meta thing on the internet. 
我必须说，现在，呃，在速度与激情中，呃，我做很多采访，很多很多很多。I guess they could see him. Anywho, China has indeed indicated a desire to crack down on Taiwan's quasi-independence as it attempts to consolidate its governance. The same applies to the Uyghurs, who we'll get to next. In order to establish a completely homogenous society and have everyone under control of the party, areas like Macau, Taiwan, and Hong Kong present an ideological and systematic problem for the PRC. So it's gradually working toward putting every territory under the thumb of the Communist Party in the way that it operates on the mainland. And I have to say, this is really fucking bullshit. I mean, how dare they demand that a defenseless island bend to its will and not allow it the freedom of self-determination? Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Hang on. Hey, yo, Max, you got a phone call? Uh, okay. But I just just tell them I'm recording. Take a message. I mean, all right. Where was I? Right. I mean, bullying an island and forcing it to operate under your system without giving the people there the right to make their own decisions, demand that they give up their resources and labor and culture. I mean, that is just. Hey, sorry, man. She insisted on speaking with you. Jesus, who is it? It's it's Puerto Rico. Oh, okay. Well, uh, put her through. <clears throat> Hello. En serio, mamá bicho. Yo no puedo creer que tú tienes los cojones. Hablar de Taiwán cuando ustedes hijos de puta hicieron la misma mierda a Puerto Rico. No, ¿Quién just... carajo tú te crees que tú eres? Ay, hijo de puta. Wow. Okay. Dime, son cabrones, que son todos hijos puta. I mean, Imagínate, to... ustedes sufriendo y lo que ellos hacen que te tiran de que es con fucking papel de toalla no, I, I get... y que no okay. me den fucking botellas de agua, mamá bicho, vaya a ser el carajo todo. Right. Sorry. He who lives in a glass house shouldn't throw stones. Oh yeah? Yeah. Oh well. Uh, how about he who lives in a glass house with a machine gun turret on the roof? That's right, man. He who lives in a glass house with a fucking machine gun turret on the roof can pretty much throw all the goddamn stones he wants. And step three: speak unironically about human rights violations. The fabled Silk Road city of Kashgar, spiritual home of ethnic Muslim Uyghurs. You're so far west here. Baghdad is closer than Beijing. Islam's always had a strong following here, which is why China's atheist government is now so concerned. That's a seven-year-old clip from Al Jazeera highlighting the struggles of the Uyghurs in the Xinjiang province. The crackdown on the way of life for the Uyghurs is nothing new, but it's become somewhat of an overnight sensation in the U.S. media now that we're building the case against China. We've long criticized China on its human rights violations, but done little to encourage them to do better outside of rhetoric. Just as we used women in Afghanistan in our shifting rationale during our longest war, or talked about liberating the people of Cuba through 60 years of brutal sanctions, aiding the good people of Nicaragua, Chile, Guatemala, and others to rid them of their democratically elected socialist governments, the Uyghurs are the new policy fascination of the United States. Nothing about Palestine, Yemen, Sudan, Myanmar, or any of the other people who are suffering under brutal regimes. Just the Uyghurs and Ukrainians, for good measure, because it suits our current prevailing narrative. China denies accusations from the United States that it has detained up to two million Uyghurs, many of them Muslim, in a system of modern-day internment camps in the Xinjiang region in northwestern China. People in question are the Uyghurs. They're a mostly Muslim ethnic minority in a region of China called Xinjiang, 
and the Chinese government has been treating them absolutely terribly. Fox News alert now. The United States leveling perhaps the most serious charge a country can face, accusing China in the last hour and a bit of committing genocide and crimes against humanity in its repression of Uyghur Muslims. I am in no way suggesting that we ignore the plight of the Uyghur Muslims in China. Multiple outlets have done credible reporting on this issue, and it is clearly a violation of human rights and should take center stage at the United Nations. Moreover, if we had any determined policy in the United States to use economic leverage to prevent atrocities, we would have already done so considering this isn't an old story. And we would be using this leverage in other parts of the world where rights are trampled on, like, I don't know, Saudi Arabia. Instead, just days ago, the Biden administration approved a new deal for $650 million in arms sales to the Saudis, making a complete reversal from his campaign position. One note before we close. I want to return to the guy that we mentioned in an earlier clip, the one that said China is just a giant cuddly panda. His name is Victor Gao, and he's one of the most visible mouthpieces of the Chinese government when it comes to international matters. This one is a nod to our down-under fuckers because Gao was most recently featured in a 60 Minutes Australia feature on China's rampant militarization. Here's Gao. Use all your imagination. Think about all the nightmares you can think of. And what will happen will be 10 times more than your worst nightmare. You are talking about the possibility of Armageddon. Whoa, that's right. The posture towards Australia is, let's say, a little different. Which is why so many down under are even more concerned about being caught in the middle of the US and China. Australia is far more dependent on China economically, but also has the support of the United States in all ways, particularly given the new formed AUKUS alliance where we forced Australia to fuck over Macron and purchase nuclear submarines from the United States. This did not go over well in China. Here's Gao's response to this shift in Australian policy. If the US does intervene in Taiwan and Australia supports them, what will happen to Australia? Listen. If Australia goes to fight together with the U.S. soldiers in China's drive for reunification between China's mainland and China's Taiwan, then you are talking about the worst thing you can dream of. A war between China and the United States will soon escalate out of control, and that will be Armageddon, Armageddon, and Armageddon. So as usual, our little tiffs have pretty wide ripples. I would encourage anyone interested in this issue to view the entire 60 Minutes piece that we've linked here, because as nuts as our government is, down under fuckers aren't far behind with their leadership. So it's important to recognize that it's never just us when we enter into these kind of conflicts, even though we always act like we're alone. A recent Brookings report provides what I consider an objectively mundane analysis of Chinese intentions and posture that's worth hearing because it's absent of rhetoric and hyperbole. Here's a selection of it. China's leaders present their country as acting defensively, seeking to preserve political stability, protect national sovereignty, and maintain economic security. They ascribe rising tensions in the U.S.-China relationship to an insecure America seeking to slow the pace of its relative decline by working to subvert China's rise. 
they see a shifting relative balance of power as a central driver of rising U.S.-China tensions. They dismiss American objections to Chinese repression in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and elsewhere as attempts by the United States to weaponize human rights to challenge the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party and undermine China's international image. In the face of perceived American hostility, their prescription is to pursue security through strengthening control of society, reducing vulnerabilities to American pressure, increasing the rest of the world's dependence on access to China's domestic market for their own economic expansion, rapidly improving China's military capabilities, and entrenching China's statist economic model. Now, the report talks about the risks of attempting to blunt China's economic rise versus the progressive approach of what they call, quote, engage, cooperate, and compete, end quote. The latter essentially suggests a return to pre-Trump policies that allow both nations to grow and encourages China to just do better in human rights through economic incentives. It also acknowledges the inevitability of China's GDP surpassing the United States, a notion they recognize is wholly distasteful to American elites. Brookings lands on several frameworks that must be simultaneously pursued from peer competition, separating Beijing from Moscow, statecraft and diplomacy, and that's all well and good from an academic and policy perspective. Again, we've linked the report and show notes along with a recent feature on Democracy Now! that provide better context for the stakes. Most of the reporting, from the propagandist to straightforward analysis, centers around one theme, that the American empire is sunsetting and China is ascendant. And like we've said in a few episodes now, and will continue to hammer going forward, we will not go quietly into second place. And I get it. No one likes to lose. But other than mass incarceration figures, military spending, and GDP, there's not a whole lot of first place finishes going on over here lately. Education, healthcare, happiness, longevity, infant mortality, we're a long way from winning on the measures that truly matter. And GDP is great if you have a system that encourages and allows participation in economic gains and stability. But that's not us either. We're holding on to a phantom measure of success instead of focusing on improving the lives of our own citizens. Yell about Taiwan? I give you Puerto Rico and Hawaii. Shout humanitarian crisis, and I'll give you one in five black Americans living in the carceral system. Scream about missiles on man-made islands and marching up and down Tiananmen Square in a show of force, and I say, Anyone got anything they'd rather be doing than marching up and down the square? Bottom line, who gives a fuck? That's right. I suggest we start flying the who gives a fuck banner and stop looking outside of ourselves to pick a fight and stop worrying about falling into second place by a measure that matters to literally no one except billionaires on a day-to-day -day basis. China should be bigger. There are 1.3 billion Chinese. Our goal shouldn't be bigger, but better. See, that's not an isolationist stance. Being the best doesn't always mean you're the biggest. We're putting Australia in China's crosshairs, encouraging more cooperation between Russia and China. We're leaving our European allies in a really precarious position like a child between bickering parents. 
we just keep adding to the military-industrial complex, which is of course looking to generate conflict to justify its existence, rather than, as we covered in our climate-industrial complex episode, deliberately targeting our military spending on climate resilience and beating global net-zero emissions goals, probably the most important national defense policy we could even pursue. A regular listener recently emailed to express concern that I might be tilting towards separating the Democratic Party and clearing the way for Republicans to yet again conquer a divided left. It's exactly the opposite. What I and others are attempting to do is actually unite the left by speaking plainly about our history and current affairs. Because when you study this shit, I mean really, really study it, certain trends become apparent. Peeling back the layers of propaganda to see things clearly allows us to approach the future with clear eyes and a clear heart. Do I bleed for the Uyghurs? Am I concerned for the freedoms of the Taiwanese people? Am I afraid of the Orwellian state controlled by the PRC? Yes to all of it. But I'm also afraid of the right-wing zealots that pose an immediate danger to everyone in my country. I'm afraid of getting so sick that I'll go broke. My heart breaks every time I pass a cardboard tent city in the wealthiest country in the world. My soul is crushed witnessing the hardships of indigenous people living in fourth world conditions in North America. Every time a heartless fuck on Fox News blames our welfare policy for the number of people seeking asylum in this country, rather than examining our own role in destroying their native lands, I cringe. So no. I don't want to divide the left. I'm here to unite it with clarity of thinking, understanding our history, and revealing propaganda campaigns that would have us look away from the things that put us well behind second place a long, long time ago. No war with China. Fuck Donald Trump. And fuck every single staff member, contributor, host, expert, and executive at Fox fucking news. Here endeth the lesson. The show notes calling out listeners one by one. Show notes. Bloopers and thank yous, it's so much fun. Welcome to Show Notes, hun fuckers. A couple of quick updates on our coffee store in partnership with Native Coffee Traders. We have supply issues all over the place, which isn't entirely a bad thing. First of all, our regular bags were backordered a bit due to a high demand at our supplier and uh, the increased volume of orders presumably leading into the holidays. So thank you for the increased orders. We just sent over a stock of temporary bags and our regular bags should be here in about mm, two weeks, including bum, 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 our newest blend hitting the store called Mellow Maynard, named for our beloved John Maynard Keynes. Amy over at Native Coffee Traders is working it up for us and gearing up, so we're super pumped about that. Which brings us to the next thing, which is in about two weeks, Unfuckers will also be able to order whole bean versions of each of our blends. That's the good stuff. Now for the bad news. Native Coffee Traders got hit with a massive increase in coffee bean prices, and they've held off as long as possible, but as of January 1st, our prices will be increasing slightly to cover the cost of the increase to our partner. We're working on building in bigger discounts for larger purchases to take some of the sting off of the increase, 
even though we know that we have coffee priced below what other premium distributors charge. But most of the orders that we receive are for the sampler or more than three bags. So we're going to try and offset that increase with the discounts on, on those kind of orders. So we'll email everyone when we have the final pricing. And for those of you with monthly coffee subscriptions, we'll be reaching out to you personally so you're not caught off guard in the new year. As for remaining episodes this year, we're looking at pieces on libertarians and unions, though we reserve the right to shift things up a bit if we're mad at something in the news. And also, we're going to take a little break over the new year. So the last episode of 2021 will be the holiday show, and then we'll return in the second week of January. Hopefully, the world is still here. Now, on to the rest of show notes and messages from our listeners. So we had a lot of activity this week, as usual. Thank you so much to our growing unfucking community for supporting us. Joshua K. bought three coffees for us. Used to listen to MSNBC and think, fuck my life. Fuck your life! Bing bong! Now I can subsist on a diet of pods like UNFTR. I sincerely thank you for the levity. It's needed, FMF. Bookstore Kim bought us five coffees. Oh, she's raising a cup to Uncle Gnome. Indeed. Nurse Mary bought five coffees. Thanks to my big sister, Anne, for turning me onto the show. Funny, educational, and depressing all in one. Well, then we thank your big sister, Anne, as well. Anne B., I don't know if that's related, bought ten coffees. The graduate of the boot camp of capitalism is glad to hear you talking about evidence-based economics and how it has sent all the money to the very few FMF. Bernie B. is now a member. All right. Thanks, Bernie B., for coming on board. Megan is also now a member, said, I love your show, especially the access to your references. I often hear information on podcasts and later want to incorporate it into my high school science lessons. You make it easy to find the information when I need it. Megan, that is all due to the indefatigable work of the great 99. And Rob Nasby is also now a member. Almost finished listening to your back catalog of episodes, eagerly looking forward to future ones. FMM? Who's FMM? FRR? Fuck Ronald Reagan. Who's FMM, do you think? Fuck, uh, mm, uh-huh. Mitch McConnell. Yeah, fuck that turtle. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, over on Facebook, Kyle C. said, my wife and I vote for plant fuckers. Well, Kyle, you won. Plant fuckers it is. What happened over on the Twitters? Our PR rep is back, Gypsy in America. Yes, happy birthday to the most sage, intellectual, and honorable unfucker, Noam Chomsky. You're welcome. He thanked us. I wasn't just saying you're welcome. (laughs) I read it in my brain and then I didn't read it out loud. Uh, Midwest Monster said, hey, become a member or buy some coffee if you're able to and help the revolution of thoughts and ideas flourish. At Eating Waste said, happy birthday, oh public intellectual that we deserve. Dictator Tortle, never a week goes by without listening to your podcast. Ace Ashoke said, got me so hooked. I cannot stop listening. Like, I'm excited to listen to a podcast. And then lastly, Will Watkins fourth between plant fuckers and unclunker and clunkers. That's what it is. It's a fucking clunker between plant fuckers and uncluckers. I have to say plant fuckers would get my vote. Plant fuckers fits with the tone of the show and is more inclusive of the vegetarian community. Over on Instagram, the book queen said, happy Noam Chomsky day to you. Nicole Jelenart gave us three hearts. John McSk- Joe McLugelschmortz said, yeah, Noam Chomsky forever. 835 Jim said, good episode, great podcast, except for the negative comments about New Jersey. Can't help it. 835 Jim, it is what it is. Go back to that last episode, hear the explanation from another Jersey fucker who just said, that's just the way we show love. That's just it. That's what it is between us. We're over here in New York. You're over in New Jersey. You'll fuck New Jersey. Oh, come on. This is a joke. At mistress of mischief, mistress, shit, 
said, Happy Nom Chomsky Week. Nom, nom, nom. At Pure Power Kennel said, Happy birthday, Uncle Gnome, but I was a bit disappointed in the lack of Stephen Fry being mentioned together with Alan Alda as a perfect person. Oh, Stephen Fry is pretty perfect. It's just that Alan Alda is more perfecter. Sorry about that at Pure Power Kennel. Booze Beach's Border Collie said, So happy to see a combo of Noam Chomsky and you mentioning that Hawaii should have had a referendum on statehood alongside Puerto Rico. What a combo. Big love from your Hawaiian friend living in Australia via New Zealand. Wow. Booze Beach's Border Collie's got it all going on. And Spencer RDS, a serial on fucker, said, Love the Noam Chomsky episode. The man is an inspiration. This episode touched on the whole reason I am an unknucker. Good hearing from you, Spencer RDS. On Substack, things were happening over there. Jules Lules was actually in a little bit of a conversation with Charlie Spring, which really made my heart sing. Thank you two for uh, weighing in and going back and forth a little bit. And a bunch of emails came in. Here we go. Chris York asked about the whole bean coffee, whether it will be ready for the holiday. We are so close, Chris York, but I can't say with confidence that we'll absolutely be ready for holiday shipping because things get so tight around then. But again, it will be pretty close. Chris also sent some really strong feedback about the tone of the show, how show notes is developing, the value of the skits and so on. So I just want to say that I really appreciate the thought that went into his critique. Cameron Johnson said an awesome Hunter Thompson quote. Ready? History is hard to know because of all the hired bullshit. But even without being sure of history, it seems entirely reasonable to think that every now and then the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long fine flash for reasons that no one really understands at the time and which never explain in retrospect what actually happened. He says that we're making history fun and easy as opposed to hard, which is pretty awesome. And he then says, how the fuck am I going to use my favorite Hunter Thompson quote again? And also that he was booted from the Wonkets community for uh, using profanity. Well, you are definitely home now, Cameron Johnson. Welcome to the unfucking fold. A listener who asked not to be named asked a really good question. How should we as progressives and most likely secular think about morality? I sometimes hear podcast hosts briefly mention this or that is immoral, but rarely talk about which framework or principles they use when thinking about morality. Is this question completely out of scope for a political podcast? If so, do you have any suggestions for another podcast that deals with secular morality? I just realized I haven't thought too much about morality. It was just when joining the environmental movement where I started to think about having heard many people refraining from this or that, like flying or eating meat, because it felt wrong. What do you think? Well, first of all, thank you for the question. See, I truly believe that the core of progressivism deals with exactly this question. It's less real politique and more morality. Understanding the consequences of our actions in economic, social, political, and climate justice terms, moving from adversarial to cooperative positions on policy. As far as pods that deal with morality specifically, I think I would have to turn to the unfucking community to offer suggestions, and we'll read them off if we get any good ones. And, and by the way, the environmental show that you know I listen to is called Outrage and Optimism because I think they balance politics and morality of climate change pretty well. So check them out if you get a chance. Atomic Dog was very disappointed in my lack of understanding of the natural world. Oh, this is embarrassing. Oh, Max, you poor basic white guy. Hens do not need roosters to produce eggs. Muttering under my breath, one more reason on cluckers is better. All hail to the matriarchy, but I digress. Unless you want those eggs to have the potential of becoming chicks. Sound familiar? It's only the potential. They aren't chicks yet. Sure wish someone would explain that to the Supreme Court assholes. Then maybe you can unfuck reproductive rights. I'm not sure it's even possible when the same forces that have been trying to do away with abortion all these years also impede birth control, women's health care, and do not support programs to help low-income families. Atomic dog. Preach. Preach. 
good stuff right there. And I am a poor basic white guy. I really didn't. Uh, I really didn't know about uh, that they could just uh, they could just lay eggs without without a rooster. I'm I'm um, kind of a city boy. I'm gonna be honest. I know a lot of <laughs> politics shit. What did you- <laughs> I, I just don't know stuff about the natural world. Okay, well, so let's let's go through this thought exercise. Okay. It lays an egg. Yeah. When does it become a chick? How long do you like? It lays the egg. You pick it up. Like you take it and you put it in your fridge. What stops her from becoming a chick? No, I get that I'm stupid. It's something I, know, I, I never thought you, about. You just never thought about it. I just never thought about it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. I'm giving him a side eye. Yeah. No, she really is. Well, I just never thought about it. Okay. It's just embar- never had a chicken. It's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. That I've looked up to you and I valued you. Hardly. Past tense. Hardly. Because now you don't even know about, you know. I don't know about things in the natural world. I really do don't. Do I need to teach you about ovulation? Do tell. Never mind. Zach W. wrote in proving once again that I'm in the lower percentile of intellect on this show, saying, quote, I'm not a huge expert on Chomsky and I have no idea how he feels about deconstructionism, but I maintain that this is the cognitive process that gives Noam Chomsky and any likable politician his command over understandable language. Lit scholars are fighting over a shrinking pool of relevance and our actual critical analysis of language on a social scale still makes excuses for logical fallacies. Noam might be the last smart, influential man trying his hardest to tell the truth, and I don't think anyone else is going to step up. I wouldn't take the job. 99 was a great addition to the show, but she is super right about the Godfather thing. Not everybody thinks it's so awesome. PPS, fuck Jordan Peterson so hard. He may be the only thing that I've held actual hate for. A lot of stuff in there, Zach W. A lot of good stuff. And the great Bobby McDee from Ireland weighed in with a Noam Chomsky story of his own and reflections on possible successors to the mantle of public intellectuals saying, For my money, the closest we have to Chomsky or had is Chris Hedges and the late Sheldon Wolin. And Randall Balmer packs a punch as well. Thanks for the input, Bobby. Hope all is well in Ireland, my friend. And I'm sorry about your pooch, brother. Lastly, Sharla from Montana sent a book love suggestion. Vivek Ramaswamy, a scientist, lawyer, and former venture capitalist and entrepreneur, has a new book out, Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. Ooh, that's a good one. Thank you, Sharla. And by the way, you shall heretofore be referred to as Charla Big Sky. Thank you. We did have a couple reviews. Matt Bear, 1995, said, been listening for a little while. Found them through Pod Save the People. Uncluckers is better. And Nieve and Estrellas said, oh, and I forgot to say in my previous review, FMF. Well, as always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Manny Faces Media. Shouts to Mrs. Faces. Gracias, Jessica y Brianna. And rest in peace to the Iron Man, Greg Tate. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. (sighs) And our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Hawkeye Pierce and distributed by The Silk Road. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at Gmail. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRPod. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop. Read our essays on Substack. Remember, folks, if you go to unftr.substack.com, it is always going to be free. That's it. I got nothing else to say. Don't even know what day it is, 99. Saturday. Cool. I guess I'll see you next week. I think so. I hope so. Yeah. See you later. Bye.
Howdy do on fuckers, sub fuckers, euro fuckers, down under fuckers, unconuckers, pitch bottle pack fucker. But other than mass incarceration figures, military spending, and GDP, there's not a hot. Yeah. At this point, but I. At Pure Power, Kendall said, Happy birthday, Uncle Noam, but I wasn't a bit. To, but I wasn't. Fuck. F R R F F D R F D J T T. Oh, Donald J Trump. I write. I rhyme J and T. F F M F F R R F F. Fuck. F M F F R R F F D R F D J T. Jesus. D J T. D J T. That's my D J name. Uh, never a week goes by without listening to your podcast. FMF, FRR, FFDR, FDJT, etc. Oh, so bored. Just kidding.